Jeff Payne collects vintage football cards and memorabilia. As a fellow sports card collector, I was very pleased to hear this. I collect ultra-modern baseball cards of today's current players. But Jeff's passion is a bit more expansive. He collects memorabilia from football players over a 100-plus year span. Everything football from 1869 to 1988. Cards, programs, ticket stubs, photos, matchbook covers, and postcards. Jeff collects it. I collect anything vintage American football from the inception of the game in 1869 through about 1988, both baseball and football cards. And then uh, when my boys got into sports, um, they started picking up and wanting to collect things. And I just kind of went along for the ride for a while and then just kind of caught the bug and, and decided to keep, keep rolling, uh, you know, going forward. Um, but I have some, some pretty nice Jim Thorpe items. Probably my most prized possession is I have a, a 1911 Jim Thorpe large um, cabinet photo of Thorpe from his days at Carlisle when he played in college that's autographed on the front. I've only seen one other one. It was on Antiques Roadshow, actually. So I've seen another, um, but it's my prized possession because he is my favorite all-time football slash, you know, sports person. Jeff got back into collecting when his children took an interest in it. And he quickly found that the hobby provides a few life lessons for young collectors. How to negotiate, also how to ask for things, right? The right way. So, you know, when they first started, they didn't know a lot. So I used to walk around with them and, and I would point out, you know, who the you know star players were, the people that, you know, were pretty well known. And, and then I would help them figure out what, what they should ask for, you know, in terms of a price and do a little negotiation. Then when they got good, they didn't really need me anymore. And that's ironically when I actually started picking things up myself because I was getting bored because I would take them to shows and stuff. I was pretty much just the chauffeur. They had, you know, price guides and they had memorized everything. They knew everything about it. <laughs> A lot of times more than I did. And so I was just dropping them off more or less, but they were too small to leave there by themselves. So why vintage when you can watch any team play any week? Why collect items from players who played decades or even a century ago? I'm a big history buff um, around sports. When I was a kid, I read all the time. I read every sports book that was in the elementary school library, you know, middle school library, high school library. And I just always liked the history of sports. And so, you know, <clears throat> my collecting, even as a kid, even though I was, you know, really just opening packs, you know, I grew up in the 70s and trading with friends and whatnot, you know, did find a couple of antique malls and a couple of um, card shops that occasionally, we, you know, arm twist our parents into taking us to, and they had older things. And I would see cards that I had read about these players, right? I'd read about Red Grange or Jim Thorpe or, you know, on the baseball side, Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb or whoever it was. And here I'm seeing things from their playing days. And I just thought that was really cool being so, you know, interested in the history of sports that I just gravitated toward the, the, um, the old timers. Plus I always joke, I don't have to worry about Babe Ruth getting hurt and his card value going down, right? At this point, you know, he's pretty pristine, you know? To us collectors, there's something cathartic about it. It's more than just a way to spend time and money on a frivolous pursuit. 
It's a path to fulfillment. I think it's similar to what I hear a lot of collectors say, which is it's all—it's a way to reconnect with your with your childhood, right? <clears throat> I mean, we all most look back pretty fondly on their childhood. Not everything was, you know, perfect, but you know, collecting to me is just—it reminds me of a simpler time. You know, the only care in the world I had was, you know, what was going to be for dinner. You know, on the weekends, running down the street, playing with friends, opening packs, you know, trading them, chewing gum, you know, hitting a ball, catching a ball, whatever you're doing. Um, it just, it's really, I, I feel like it connects you with your youth. This is the Ready, Test, Go podcast brought to you by Applause. I'm David Carty. Today's guest is vintage football collector and CEO, Jeff Payne. Jeff's company, Coveros, is a consultancy that helps clients modernize their software processes. From technical lead to CEO, Jeff Payne has made a 35-year career of building secure software and solving digital quality concerns. Jeff has published more than 30 papers on software development and testing, and has even testified before Congress on digital issues. Coveros owns TechWell, which hosts the popular STAR and Agile DevOps conferences, including Star West, which was held in Anaheim earlier this month. Let's talk with Jeff. Let's start out with your definition of what agile testing is. What is agile testing really? And what sorts of processes does it involve? Yeah, great question. So I always hate when people define terms with the terms themselves. So I'm tempted to say mm -hmm. agile testing is, is testing in an agile development process, but it actually is more than that. Certainly, you know, any kind of testing you're doing within an agile process, you could describe as agile testing, or at least testing for agile. But I think if you go deeper into it, um, there are particular techniques and approaches to testing that are agile that you could apply to any software development process, right? A great example is exploratory testing. You know, it's a very iterative, learn as you go, plan as you go testing technique that is very popular in Agile, but there's no reason you can't apply. And it is applied to waterfall and other types of development processes. So I always say that um, you know, Agile testing is testing that is performed in an incremental or exploratory manner that allows you to plan your testing as you go. That's my definition. And in your discussions with clients and people attending Star West, what sorts of challenges did you hear around uh, agile testing adoption? Were those challenges organizational? Were they financial? A little bit of both, something in between? What can you share from some of the conversations you had? Yeah, I just got back from agile agile testing. This um, it was this past week. Uh, great, great show. Had a lot of good, engaging conversations with people. Um, what I heard, and I did give a talk on agile testing and some of the challenges. Um, you know, what I heard from from people is unfortunately in an agile process, and I'm talking really here about, you know, the testing we're doing in an agile development process. Um, the first challenge is we're still doing little mini waterfalls in our sprints, you know, call it scrum or fall, scrum, but, you know, there's lots of names given to it, but it's, it's where we're still, we've just tried to shrink down the waterfall and stick it in a very short increment of time. And, and that doesn't work very well. well. We'll talk about some of the ramifications of that later, but that is still very common out there in the industry, unfortunately. Um, the other thing I heard a lot was, you know, challenges around test automation. 
You know, I mean, we could talk, we could do a whole podcast on automation of testing and, you know, it's important to the natural process, but people are still struggling with, you know, what kinds of things should we automate? What kinds of tests should we automate? You know, how much do we automate and all those kinds of things. I heard a lot at Star West. Um, and then I think the last thing was, you know, just trying to figure out how do I get my developers and testers to work together every day? Like if I'm not going to do a water, you know, a, a little mini waterfall, what's the model look like? How do we interact every day and how does that all work? So those are kind of some of the things I heard that, you know, seemed to me you know, seem pretty prevalent at Star West. So there's a lot that we could pick apart there. Uh, let's focus on the mini waterfall sort of version of, of, of releasing here. So agile testing involves a lot of ceremonies, many of which I think our audience would be familiar with, daily stand-ups, sprint reviews, retrospectives, etc. These can be helpful, but these don't make you agile, right? That's so what correct. are some of the issues that can pop up if you're focusing too heavily on the ceremonies? Yeah, so um, a couple things. First of all, in, in the ceremonies, inherently the entire team is supposed to be doing those ceremonies together. And a lot of times I see people aren't necessarily doing the entire ceremony as a team. So for instance, you know, if one of your ceremonies in Scrum is your kickoff, you know, kind of kicking off your sprint or your iteration, um, if in that process, not everybody is involved in the sprint activities, the kickoff activities, reviewing the stories, estimating those stories, or, or at least finalizing an estimate for those stories, you know, coming up with acceptance criteria, maybe even creating some initial tests, then you're going to have problems because you're not doing everything collectively. And one of the goals in the kickoff is to make sure everybody's on the same page about what we're doing in the sprint. And if you don't work all together, there's going to be communication gaps, right? Which is what we're trying to avoid in Agile. Um, so that's one area where I think you know, people need to um, do better. The other thing is that if you, you know, at, in, at least in Scrum, and I use Scrum as a reference because it's so popular, you know, all of the Scrum ceremonies, um, if you read the Scrum kind of literature, calls them inspect and adapt activities, right? Now, the word inspect, inspect doesn't mean a status meeting, but so often these, some of these activities turn into a status update, you know, a daily status update, you know, a sprint demo is just a, you know, a demo update of what you're doing. You know, if you look up the definition of inspect, it's not status, right? It means look at something closely. It means examine something against a standard or a criteria. It means some you know, kind of thought process associated with it, right? Not just, here's my status. And we don't often do that. And then the second thing is we don't adapt. So a lot of these stand-ups, you know, we don't spend any time after we've inspected talking about, well, what should we do about this? Or what should we do differently? Or how do we handle these challenges that we just heard about? Um, and so we don't inspect and adapt. Um, and regardless of whether you're following Scrum or not, I think that's a good you know, kind of best practice for any of your ceremonies, right? And then some people just aren't doing, you know, we'll, we'll run into companies all the time at Covaris that, you know, they don't do retrospectives and, and then they complain that they're not getting better. Well, that's what retrospectives are for. They're to inspect and adapt what you're doing and make it better. If you're not doing that, you're not going to get better. So that there needs to be more rigor, rigor around just doing ceremonies. 
these are well-intentioned ceremonies, right? But they can actually get in the way, it sounds like, of actual process improvement, or at the very least, they can paint a little bit of an inaccurate picture as to what your organization is trying to accomplish uh, with, this, with some of these uh, processes here. No doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they can. And, and it results in all sorts of challenges, right? I mean, you know, this mini waterfall um, concept that I mentioned and, and not figuring out how to work together in your, your ceremonies and in your sprints leads to all sorts of problems. You know, you, usually I see things like, you know, sprints getting elongated. So organizations are trying to fix the, the problem that they don't have time to finish their testing by making the sprints longer. Well, you're, you're kind of solving the wrong problem when you're doing that. It's usually not the duration of the sprint. It's how you're working in that sprint, right? Or you'll, you'll hear, um, you know, organizations who every so often will have a hardening sprint, they'll call it. They only call it that because they know you're not supposed to have testing sprints. So they call it hardening instead, but it's just basically catch up on all the testing we didn't get done or, you know, fix all the bugs we still have. And again, solving the wrong problem, right? Uh, we need to figure out how to work better you know, in our sprints um, to fix those kinds of things. Um, those are some red flags that we see a lot, um, you know, with people that we talk to and that are struggling with Agile and Agile testing. Right, you mentioned elongating sprints, hardening sprints. What are some other red flags that you've identified uh, that point toward organizational challenges? Yeah, so <clears throat> one red flag to me is um, there's organizations out there who are trying to create a PMO to kind of make sure all the teams follow their quote agile process. Well, if you read the manifesto, you know, the beauty of agile is that, you know, you inspect and adapt, you retro as a team and you decide what's your, your process, right? There's some guidelines, there's, there naturally needs to be guardrails, but you can't prescriptively tell teams, this is agile and this is what you need to do. And, but we see that a lot. People want to codify a process, say it's the process, and then have people audit that process. And that's just not the way Agile works. That, that shows an organizational-wide misunderstanding of, of Agile. The other thing is um, senior execs are very quick to punt on a transformation or an improvement effort before it really has a chance to succeed. You know, we see them, they, they have miss expectations maybe someone gave them those expectations that transformation is going to be fast that agile is free i've heard people say well agile is free right you just like follow these you know ceremonies and and magically everything works better yeah there's nothing free in software you know <laughs> software <laughs> is a hard 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 thing to build and get right and and nothing's easy and nothing's free um, but yet some organizations believe that, have heard that because of that, they, you know, they punt too quickly and never see benefits from their improvement efforts. Right. Agile is not a tool you buy, but it's not free, yeah, right? Exactly. There's a distinction yeah, there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think the Scrum Alliance says something like, um, Scrum is amazingly simple to understand and amazingly difficult to implement correctly. And that sums up Agile, right, to me, right? You just, you got to really go into it with your eyes wide open. Yeah, and it takes patience and it takes commitment. Yep. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Um, so some of the Agile engineering practices that make for real change, behavior-driven development, continuous integration, things like that, these require really changing your way of working. 
and that's no small feat. So how can orgs accomplish that today, particularly if they are resistant to change? Yeah, great, great point. I mean, the ceremonies we're talking about are kind of what I call the process side of Agile, and they're important. We need to inspect and adapt. But in my experience, if you're not figuring out how to get your developers, your testers, other people that are you know, building, testing, and delivering software, working together in a different way with different engineering practices, then you're not going to be successful. You're going to see the problems that we mentioned earlier. You know, how do you address that if you've identified some, you know, some of the things that you mentioned as potential engineering practices to adopt? Well, first, you got to start small. I'm a huge fan of piloting um, you know, change. And so in our process at Covaris, we help lots of people transform their agile process. We always start, you know, once we have a plan in place, we always start with a pilot where we take, you know, the the improvements we feel like are going to have the biggest impact and maybe the fastest impact because we want to show some quick successes too. Back to the, if executives don't see progress, they get nervous, right? Um, and we try to apply them to a particular product first and measure the results and the success and the, you know, kind of the ROI of applying agile techniques and engineering techniques. Get it working one place first. I think that has a couple of things. One is mentioned it, it demonstrates you know, success, which is good up the chain. But what I've also experienced is, and, and you know this, any kind of change is, it's cultural, it's people related. People have to change, right? Our tools don't change, our processes don't change. We have to get people to change. And people are interesting, interesting <laughs> entities, right? Interesting beings. We don't like change in general, and so we're, we're not, typically going to jump at change. Now there's exceptions, but, but one thing that gets people to change is if you see others doing something successfully, then you might think, huh, wow, that kind of works and it looks a lot better than what I'm doing. Maybe I should try that. So already that switch has turned. And that's sometimes the hardest part. So, so piloting things, and I always say when you pilot, you got to demo like crazy. You should be giving constant demos of what you're doing and success. It gets buzz and it gets other people actually coming to you and saying, can we be next? Can we try this next? You've already won. You know, you've, you've fought half the battle when people come to you and ask for change, right? Um, versus you having to track them down, drag them out of a cave and, you know, beat them into agile submission. So, you know, piloting is a great way to do that. You also need to get everybody on the same page, you know, whether it's through formal training and education types of things, or it's, you know, self-study or brown bags and lunch and learns. you got to get everybody up to speed on what is agile really about? What's it mean? How do you be agile instead of do agile? And that takes some education any way you want to slice that because you want everybody to go into it with the same expectation, including senior leadership, as mentioned. So getting them on, on board and understanding what it means for them and for the org is going to be equally important. Right, and working with a consultancy can be great because you can be the bearers of bad news instead of somebody internally uh, trying to enforce change uh, on a, on a heavy-handed kind of level. But I did want to ask you on that note about aligning expectations. And you mentioned getting developers and testers on the same page. Uh, so I want to ask you about that. It's a critical part of achieving effective agile testing, right? It so is. 
What are some ways that organizations can foster a little bit of better collaboration between those two groups? Yeah, I would say that for me, the thing that has been the most successful is some form of pairing between devs and tests. I wrote an article on dev test pairing and gave some different approaches that um, you could use to get developers and testers working together. Whether it's one-on-one -on -one pairing, you know, with a dev and a test, whether it's you know, using kind of the BDD three amigos where you've got the business and dev and test all working together on a story or your mobbing where you have everybody working to build and test story by story, whatever you're doing to get people to work together every day um, in some model is going to help that a lot, right? Um, make a contest of it too. Uh, I've seen success with creating what we call a pairing board, where you take your team and you say, all right, developers are on this axis, my testers and other roles are on this axis, and we're gonna set a goal, depending on the size of your team, every sprint or every quarterly increment or whatever the time frame is, we're gonna figure out how everybody works with everybody else at least once on a story. And we're gonna fill the chart in and we'll do it at the end of every, either in your standups, if it's just a sprint activity or, you know, at your, um, you know, kind of your retros or your sprint demos. And then if we fill in the whole chart at the end of the quarter, we're going to have a party or something, or you're going to get a prize or whatever it is, right? Gamify it, make it fun, make it something to track. I've seen success with that because then it's a fun gaming activity with maybe some reward at the end of it instead of a, you know, thou shall all work together kind of a, you know, a mantra from above. So if there's one takeaway today, it's that pizza parties, just as much of a motivator for Absolutely. adults as it is for kids, right? I mean, Absolutely. That's what you want to leave this podcast with today. Yeah, well, but and uh, beer helps too. Not for kids. Sure. Not for kids though, yep. but for, for adults. <laughs> yeah, add that into the adult motivation, yeah. Yeah, you get my attention for sure. Uh, <laughs> So when we spoke before, you know, you mentioned that there's been an, a little bit of an interesting debate around technical debt, which is a little bit related to this yeah. topic. Um, the thinking had been that you pay down your debt whenever you have a chance to slow things down a little bit. But you told me that lately the conversation is changing a little bit. And um, how is that? Yeah. So this is something that's popped up in the last year. And we actually had an internal consultant at Caveras do a brown bag on it because they'd heard a, an interesting talk on it, thought it was an interesting discussion and we had an internal discussion about it, but now I'm starting to hear it at the events. I heard some conversation about this in one of the sessions that I attended at Star West. And really what it gets down to is that originally technical debt as defined, I think it was by Ward Cunningham, it was one of the founders of Agile, came up with the term technical debt. And his original point was that it was the um, kind of the debt that you were imposing upon yourself when you decided to release something early and because you were doing that, maybe it wasn't fully documented or maybe it wasn't fully defined or you, you decided you were going to put something out that maybe wasn't yet fully ready, um, but, but it was something you felt from a market perspective made sense to do. All right, but now over time what's happened is, and, and then there was gonna be some debt incurred that later you're gonna to have to fix. But what's happened over time is people have started to lump almost any kind of issue into technical debt. So when you ask people what they, you know, what they mean by technical debt, you know, they say everything from bugs, you know, that's technical debt, you know, uncommented code, 
code that's not readable, you know, lack of documentation are all lumped into this idea of technical debt. And that wasn't the original intent of the concept. And the point that people are saying is, hey, if you go back to the original definition, right, um, you know, that's really where we need to focus our attention. We shouldn't be just um, working off technical debt because it's technical debt as now today defined, because a lot of that may not have as much ROI as building new features. And so the pushback now is instead of just being a zealot and saying we just always have to make sure our technical debt is low, is to evaluate that debt and, and, make, and make sure it is actually debt and, and weigh that against the, the value of features that we're implementing. And we haven't, I don't feel like, done a good job of that. It's been a one-sided you know, drive to reduce technical debt irrespective of any kind of quantifiable measure, if that makes sense. Definitely. And it gets to be a scope issue like anything else, right? I mean, as you add that debt up there, you know, it gets to be harder to pay it off and it takes more mm -hmm. time and resources. Yep, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. So as you said in our discussion prior to recording, you're seeing more of an embrace of DevOps and continuous mm -hmm. integration and or at least an attempt at those practices. Yeah. And that's a good thing. But what's the next step forward for some of those orgs or teams that might still be a little bit early in their maturity level? Yeah, so from a testing perspective, I think it's about figuring out what you should and shouldn't automate, right? I mentioned earlier, one of the challenges is around automation. And I'm a firm believer, and there's people that disagree, that um, you're going to have to do some amount of automation in your development process as you move toward an agile and certainly a DevOps process because you're trying to accelerate delivery, um, you know, because you want to be able to refactor the code as you go, you have to refactor the code in an incremental model. You're gonna need a regression suite at least and you want that regression suite to be as much as possible automated. Otherwise you've got a huge block in your process. So the question is figuring out, well, what, what do I spend effort and time automating, right, for this process? And I always look at, there's a nice model out there, there's other models as well, that you know asks you to look hard at both your test suites that you have and specific tests in those test suites and ask kind of three important questions. The first one is, how important is this test? Like, if it fails, what happens, right? So, you know, is it catching a critical issue that our customers just, we just can't ever have them see? Those tests need to be run repeatedly, and that means they should probably be automated if at all possible. So prioritize your tests, prioritize your suites, prioritize by features, and automate the things that are most important that are automatable is point one. Point two is those tests, though, have to be reliable. Nothing is worse than automated tests that you have to, get on and figure out what the whether it passed or failed because you know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't they're flaky or there's some manual effort involved in the process or there's some false positives that pop up you want these tests to be reliable you want them to run and give you the same result every time they need to be um, you know they need to be reliable and not have a lot of human intervention if we're going to use them in an automated process and the last is they should be specific and that just means you know, they're testing one particular thing. They're not catch-all tests, trying to cover a lot of territory all at once. Um, we want them to test one thing. We want them to be independent so we can run them in different 
uh, orders, right? Uh, we don't want tests to rely on other tests, if at all possible, because that constrains our ability to reorder them, to automate some of them and not automate others, you know, to parallelize them and, and run them faster in parallel maybe in the cloud. That's a hot topic right now. So they need to be specific and they need to be independent. And so I always tell people, look at those three aspects of your tests and, and pick out the ones that you think make the most sense. Start with those and iteratively add to your you know, suite as you can afford to. Okay, Jeff, final sprints here. So I have a few quick questions for you. In one sentence, what does digital quality mean to you? So that's a term you hear a lot now, right? Digital quality, digital transformation. So digital quality to me, um, is really assuring the success of a customer journey or a customer engagement. I feel like it's all about the customer and the quality of that customer experience for an organization's kind of comprehensive digital platform. Anything that touches customers, how do I make sure that, that customer journey is successful? It's the way I would characterize digital quality. What will digital experiences look like five years from now? Well, I, yeah, I think that the whole goal in the digital transformation, you know, digital quality movement to me is getting a better understanding of our customers and understanding how they engage with our products and, and come through different, you know, touch points, web, mobile, or whatever it is. And I feel like there's a lot of data being collected and organizations are trying to use that data to make better decisions and, and give you know, consumers better results and better options and obviously sell them more. I really feel like AI and, and, and using artificial intelligence to take that data and start to really understand customer trends and customer needs is gonna make the experience for customers a lot clearer and, and make a lot better customer recommendations and purchasing recommendations that we as, you know, using non, you know, non AI types of um, analysis just isn't yet providing that level of sophistication. So I think that's going to drive more value. It's going to drive more customer um, satisfaction. It's going to increase customer engagement and should increase customer uh, revenue for companies that, you know, adopt that. So I think AI is going to, radically change the customer experience over time. What's your favorite app to use in your downtime? Uh, that's a great question. So, so I code for fun. I always tell people I got into software because it was what I liked to do. It was a hobby when I was a teenager. And I figured, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna get paid to do something, why not get paid to do something you like to do? So I don't code my job anymore. I haven't coded. I haven't written a piece of code in one of my companies in so long. It's embarrassing to mention, but I code on the weekends. <laughs> so I'd say, you know, a good Python um, environments, probably my favorite app because I do code at Python for fun. What's something that you're hopeful for? Yeah. So you mentioned you were going to ask this question. This is probably the question I spent the most time thinking about because it's, you know, you can go a lot of different directions with this. One of my hot buttons is, you know, software is being integrated into every product. It's being integrated into every business. It's becoming more and more, you know, business critical, mission critical. Yet so many of our organizations are not run by technologists. They're run by people who don't understand software at all. And I deal with them every day. And I feel like 
the world would be so much better, and I'm biased, of course, if organizations were run by technology-oriented people who understood software. They would make better decisions, they would invest in the right places, and they would just better understand their products than currently some organizations do. So my goal is, and my wish is that over time, you know, organizations recognize that people who understand software and understand technology great, make great senior executives because they're going to make the right decisions for the organization and the shareholders. And I hope that comes to pass. We're not there definitely yet. Will we get there eventually? I almost feel like we have to because I feel like organizations that do go that direction, I feel like, you know, there'll be hits and misses, but over time they will be more successful, I personally believe, because they'll better understand their products and that means they'll better understand their customers and should make it more successful. And, and at some point it'll tip and it'll become the in fashion thing, right? Like everybody's hiring a tech CEO or whatever, it'll become the end thing, I hope. Well, Jeff, I always appreciate talking with you. Next time we speak, it might have to be about sports memorabilia or cards, but I hope that we get to do that again soon. Yeah, no, that, this has been great. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. That was our conversation with Jeff Payne, CEO of Caveros. I always enjoy talking with Jeff, and I hope to get a peek at his vintage football collection again in the future. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Thanks as well to our producers, Joe Stella and Sam Susala, and graphic designer, Carly Searles. Feel free to reach out at podcasts at applause.com. That's plural, podcasts at applause.com. And we will catch you next time.